Specialty Story, session number 159. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited that you are joining me today for a great guest. We have Dr. Brian Lima, a cardiac surgeon who has an amazing story about his journey to cardiac surgery, his destiny to cardiac surgery. And we have a great discussion about cardiac surgery. What's it like, the competition or or the actual technology changes and what that leads to for the future for cardiac surgery and much more. This is a great follow-up episode to last week when we had an interventional radiologist on. You should go listen to that one if you haven't listened to that one yet. Go listen to that after this one if you want to see some uh, comparison and contrast because the guest last week potentially wanted to do cardiac surgery and then changed his mind after learning about interventional radiology and the future and technology of interventional radiology. But this week, Dr. Lima is going to talk about his love of cardiac surgery, the jet setting around the country, going and procuring organs and coming back and helping transplant them, especially, obviously, the heart, since he is a cardiac surgeon. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you want to hear more about Dr. Lima's journey, go to brianlima.com. He has a book out, Heart to Beat, by again, by Dr. Brian Lima. We start the conversation by finding out when Dr. Lima first became interested in cardiac surgery. I, in college, I did a summer program at uh, NYU. It was like a summer research program between my junior and senior year. And before then, I thought, uh, yeah, uh, doctor, sounds cool. Like, I, don't, I mean, I had no <laughs> idea. Uh, my sister was, my older sister was an x-ray tech, so she always talked up radiology. She's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I work with radiologists. They're so great. They have such a great lifestyle. So I kind of had that idea, but I had no idea. And um, I got to shadow surgeons uh, at NYU and I got to watch, it actually wasn't even a heart surgery. It was like a colon operation, but they let me scrub in and I had never been in the OR before, nothing like that. And I scrubbed in and I was like, Whoa, this is the coolest <laughs> you thing. You didn't pass out, ever. right? No, no. Like, okay, it's good. like binomial. It's like either you pass out and throw <laughs> up or whatever, or you like, think it's the greatest thing. Yep. So I was in the latter group and I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. And, um, it evolved from there because when I got to medical school, I, you know, I got to see, you know, the hierarchy of kind of residency and surgery and the longest training was heart surgery. And these were like the, it seemed to me at least like the, the meanest, baddest, you know, uh, they knew everything. They, they yeah. trained for 10 years. They were the I, rock I stars. Just, I just looked up to, yeah, I just looked up to them. I was like, wow, I want to be like that guy. So, uh, it kind of, that's how it evolved. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't play in this, but it, it kind of works out that the, the interview that went out the week before yours is with an interventional radiologist and someone who wanted to go the cardiac, um, the kind of CTS route and kind of saw the direction that cardiac surgery was heading and was yep. like, I'm going to go more of the, the IR route because that's where tech is heading. Sure. Did you ever have yep. that question in your mind to where, 
the like the, these open surgeries are are becoming less and less common because we have the technology to do it um, endovascularly. Is that is that a mm-hmm. discussion that you ever had, or were you dead set on I really have this goal of of heart transplantation, and so uh, obviously we're not gonna do that minimally invasive anytime soon. Right. So it was, um, I had heart surgeons saying, eh, I don't know, man, I don't know if I would, <laughs> if I had to do it over again, you know? Um, but if you look at the field, um, like you've said, I mean, heart failure is growing exponentially. So we're going to be dealing with this in all facets of medicine, you know, regardless of what area you go into and uh, the need for some form of heart replacement therapy, whether that's heart transplant or the devices that are evolving to do that, artificial heart pumps, yep. that all has no signs of, and that's very techy too, and it has no signs of slowing down. So that is, that was, since that was my area of focus, I felt like the future was, you know, definitely going to be bright for that area. Now, certainly other parts of cardiac surgery are evolving too, but I think what we learned the hard way with, you know, uh, interventional, you know, coronary work is that we're not going to be so readily, you know, uh, easily give it up to the cardiologist. So, you know, the whole team, heart team thing with percutaneous valves. So that's a heart surgeon and a cardiologist working in tandem for all of those procedures. Um, so I think we've learned our lesson, but there's still plenty, plenty of the, you know, if anything, I think there's going to be a critical shortage, which we can get into yeah. of heart surgeons in the future. As you went through the process of being a pre-med student, going to medical school, applying to residency, did you ever waver on your your path to cardiac surgery or were you dead set on that path the whole way? I was dead set on it, but I, I mean, it was hard. It, it was such a long, I mean, you know, 10 years of training is a long time. 10 years, you know, seven years of general surgery with two years of research stuffed in there. Um, yeah. And I think it, what I started to see as I came through is that less and less people out there were, dare I say, crazy enough to <laughs> delve into such a long uh, period. Of, and so that's what kind of spawned these I-6 residencies. So now, instead of having to do the full general surgery and then you know two, three-year fellowship in cardiac, much like neurosurgery, ortho, ENT, you can match straight out of medical school into mm-hmm. cardiac surgery. And which is how, you know, uh, England and, you know, South America, that's how they've done it for forever. Right. So that's kind of how things have changed because I think people started to realize, do I really need to do 200 gallbladder removals to, <laughs> if I know, you know, I'm going to be a heart surgeon? It yeah. made no sense. Right. At that to that degree. So. Finally, I think common sense, you know, um, uh, won the day, but I had to go through the regular old school, <laughs> the old school uh, right. way. It's uh, not fun. Yeah. 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 What, are, what are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around cardiac surgery? Well, um, it's funny because most people say, oh, wow, you're like really nice uh, <laughs> for a heart surgeon. Yeah. Like I, you know, you imagine like uh, Alec Baldwin and Malice, like just totally, you know, God complex and yeah. like screaming at everybody and full of themselves. But I would argue that heart surgery is the most humbling field, in my opinion, because um, at all you know, whatever, let's call it 100 steps of any heart surgery, you can kill somebody, mm-hmm. right? And so a mistake means somebody dies. I mean, other kinds of surgery, you know, those types of mistakes aren't, the, the stakes aren't as high, I would say. So I 
you know, because when I came through, I kind of had those misconceptions too, right? And uh, but as I've gone through it, I'm like, wow, this is humbling. Just when you think you got it, and you're like, oh yeah, this is. I'm like, I'm it, you know. And then wham, something happened. So it's very humbling. So that's a huge misconception. The whole God complex, um, and and really across the board, all areas of medicine, the stuff that used to fly, you know, what are 15 years ago, 20 years ago, being mean and just sort of. That doesn't work. I mean, it, 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 people won't put up with that anymore. Yeah. Uh, everyone has been empowered all, for, you know, from the lower tier all the way to, you know, to lowest rung, top rung of the team. Everyone has a voice. Everyone's empowered. So you can't, you can't sort of have these, those shenanigans won't fly anymore. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just not, this is not going to happen. Yeah. De- definitely going through my training, uh, third and fourth year was that 2008. 2009-ish time period, there's definitely some surgeons that are still screaming at people uh, <laughs> at that point. I'm like, yeah, wow. Like, okay, <laughs> that's right, how we're going right. to play this game today. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, it usually yeah. wasn't directed at me, but yeah. Yeah. Not touchy-feely, but it's getting better. It's getting yeah. better. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the the types of pathologies, the types of patients that you're seeing and treating. As, as a cardiac surgeon, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that's probably out there from the students is all you do is heart transplants. Like you just take a heart out and put one in, take a heart out and put one in. What, what other mm-hmm. sorts of, of things are you doing with patients? So it runs the gamut. So, you know, you can take coronaries, right? So coronary artery blockages, mm-hmm. um, many of those patients require bypass surgery, you know, as, as, as much as uh, the stent technology has evolved, um, it still can't, you know, there's still scenarios where, you know, three vessel disease, low ejection fraction, things like that, that, you know, coronary artery bypass is still the gold standard. So there's, there's a lot of that. There's all the structural heart stuff. So all the valves, so aortic valve, mitral valve, tricuspid valve, any, you know, re, you know, stenosis or regurgitation, endocarditis, all of those require surgical intervention. If you can do it with the transcatheter approach, great, but often it's not, you know, it's not doable with a transcatheter, less and less so these days, but a lot of that is still open surgery. All the aortic pathology, aortic aneurysms, aortic dissections um, often require open surgery. So uh, there's still a great deal of stuff that's that's within our sort of wheelhouse of things that we do um, that run the gamut. So, yeah. Lots, lots of different things. How many yeah. of the patients that you see in a clinic setting, uh, making the assumption that you're seeing patients in clinic and not just operating all day long, but how many of those patients are you actually taking to the OR versus sending for other, t- other types of therapy? So my view of that is a bit skewed in that um, I often, since I'm the my main niche is in heart failure. So I'm seeing patients often that uh, are already hospitalized for decompensated heart failure. So they're already hospitalized and we're kind of, our team is involved in determining if they're a candidate for advanced therapies, a heart transplant, a left ventricular assist device. So I would say of all the patients that we are uh, evaluating, whether it's outpatient or inpatient for advanced therapies, I would say probably maybe a quarter of them or a half of, or half of them end up meeting the criteria or going on towards um, uh, needing a transplant or a VAT or getting one. Um, I would say, off, you know, there is a big screening, you know, process that happens as the patients eventually work, make their way to us. We're sort of the end of the line, so to speak. 
So by and large, I would say if a patient gets sent to us to be seen, you know, in, in our office or we get called about a patient who just gets cathed, right? That happens a lot. You get a call from the cath lab, hey, I just cathed this guy. He's got three vessel disease. You think can you, you know, bypass some misadmission or whatever. So there's a lot of screening that already goes into it. So a good chunk of the patients that we are called about are surgical, you know, candidates for something. Yeah. That's I, I want to divert a little bit from normal specialty stories discussion with your role in transplantation. In this country, we have an opt-in system. Usually at the DMV, when you go get your license, you're you're asked if you want to be uh, an organ donor. In a lot of countries, it's an opt-out system where it assumes you're an organ donor and they ask if you don't want to be one. And human psychology tells us we kind of stick with the default. Do you think we should switch to a an opt-out system here in this country? I I believe we should. Yeah. Um, it's a you know obviously a touchy subject, but I think uh, there's such a huge disparity uh, across the board of you know some states that have really really good you know rates of people signing up and they just do it, and other states like New York where I happen to be is the worst state really? for that. Wow. Um, yeah, and so that really does you know hamper our ability to get donors. Um, and of course, people have uh, you know this pre this misconception out there that you know oh I don't know I sign up to be a donor and it may not you know push comes to shove they may not try as hard which is like the craziest thing right because yeah. uh, if anything you can say we're more guilty of kind of you know really sticking it out when things are obviously like we're we're very reticent to throw in the towel if anything you know we're like. Now let's keep pushing, you know, whatever. So it's, I can't even remember, you know, well, you know, we looked at his license. This guy's <laughs> not a donor. donor. <laughs> so maybe I just, I was like, doesn't he, it's like the furthest thing from, you know, so it's crazy that people still think that. Yeah. But um, Thanks, it's Facebook. a shame. It's a shame. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, yeah. I've, right. I've seen those memes on Facebook. That's, that's where it's all from. What does a typical day look like for you? So I get up super early. I'm a big uh, believer of, you know, conquer the morning, kind of just set the tone. So um, I, well, I should say I get called frequently at night throughout the night for donor offers, for hard organ uh, offers. And uh, without fail, they tend to happen between one and three. So I have the sleeping habits of like a, you know, I guess a newborn where I go to bed early and then I know I'm going to get, you know, nailed in the middle of the night with the calls. So then I go back to sleep. So I got up around four. So I'm usually at the hospital by uh, before six or six ish. Uh, or is at seven thirty. So, you know, see all my patients in, uh, in the unit and on the floor. We do our formal rounds and then um, get to the OR, you know, uh, do a case. Um, because of transplant, sometimes it's unpredictable. So sometimes, you know, I'll have a, a free day or two. And then other times I'm just operating for days on end, just sort of that feast or famine type of phenomenon that happens. So um, on any given day, I, you know, have a case. And then uh, in between cases or after my case, I see my patients again. I, I have probably the sickest patients in the whole hospital, mm. uh, you know, they're on a bunch of machines, different pumps, supporting the right side, supporting the left side. So they require a lot of uh, a lot of micromanagement. So um, so I usually see those folks throughout the day, a few times a day, and obviously make sure before I, you know, if nothing's happening, which is rare, uh, five or six o'clock, I can probably you know safely get out of here. Um, but often there's something else that's going on, um, and, I, and I stick it out to see you know. How I can help. 
How does that affect life outside of the hospital, family life, et cetera? You know, because of the sort of uh, how the swings are and uh, it's unpredictable. So, um, you know, when you're on call um, for the week or whatever for transplant that you're, 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 you're just a sitting duck in a sense that anything goes, anything happens, you know, so and really it also depends on the kind of family life you've set up. So if you have I'm, I lucked out, you know, my wife is really understanding um, she, she gets it right. I mean, sometimes there's, it's really beyond my control, yeah. but we, what you try to do is, you know, you gotta make up, you know, if, if you had a bad week or a bad day, then maybe you make the next week or the next day better. You try to sort of, you know, have it all even keel when you can. Um, so, um, I do it day by day, you know, and, um, I would say by it's doable, it's manageable. It's not as hard as what residency was, yeah. um, because at the end of the day, you can still, you know, you have you have other partners you can work with to set up a call schedule. You could, you could set it up in such a way that you, you know, you you have a life. Um, it's just, it's just going to ebb and flow. Yeah, I think a lot of students when they hear heart transplantation or trans- transplantation in general, they they picture jet setting around the country doing procurements and getting that call and, and heading to the private airport on the private jet. Is, does that still exist? Who, who's, who's going out and doing the, the jet setting? Well, um, you know, either I am or, you know, I have other partners. So because, you know, the recipients often are pretty complicated. So mm-hmm. that's a whole other surgery in and of itself to, for example, explant a artificial heart pump or an LVAD. That's two hours of work right there, just to, so because the timing has to be down to the to the minute. Because, you know, heart really you, you want to try to keep it the ischemic time under four hours. So, usually you divide up with your partner. So let's say your partner's going to get the heart right, and then you are working on the recipient. If it's a second or third time in the chest, you have it such that when that donor comes into the OR, you're already dissected out. You're ready to you know take the heart out. Because if you don't, then then the heart's going to sit there in the ice, you know, bucket for another two hours. So that has to be really tightly orchestrated. Um, but uh, I did a lot of the, you know, since I'm the director of the program, um, and some of these patients are pretty complicated. By and large, I'm mostly on the recipient end of it. But um, I, I've done countless donor runs. They're fun. Yeah. The problem is they're never they're never at like you know nine a.m. They're at like you know <laughs> one in the morning. Yeah, uh, that's that's the that's the trouble with that. Yeah, so you get to sleep on the private jet. Yeah, I, I've done yeah. one and and unfortunately it was just right down the road at a different hospital. We got we got to yeah. take a car. <laughs> not, oh, not a fancy jet. Helicopters fun. We can sometimes do the helicopter. I don't trust so helicopters. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. That, that uh, you got to have the stomach for it. But um, they're fun. I think they're fun. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I have my private pilot, but for fixed wing, I, I don't trust helicopters. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. So talk about the, the training path. You, you talked a little bit about the, how there has been a big change in the training. What does that look like now for students? So I think students have actually three options. Um, there's the regular traditional, if you, you want to call it that way, that, all, that I did it, where you do general surgery residency first. Mm. And general surgery residency, clinically speaking, is five years. Uh, many programs though, you know, you know, upper tier programs typically will sort of want you to do two years of research within that too. So then, and it becomes seven years. 
So I, I trained at Duke, and Duke is everybody does the two years of research, and it's typically years three and four. Um, and actually, you kind of get to moonlight during that time. You know, still engage. You know, in the uh, in the ICU work, or go on heart. You know, procurement. So I did a lot of that. It was it was great. And then you know, the, your fellowship for cardiothoracic uh, can be anywhere from two to three years. Um, it depends if you're going to a cardiac track or a thoracic track. And I think if there's anything that's changed in our specialty is the days of you, you know, doing a heart transplant and taking out a lobe of a lung and then doing a carotid, all, you know, all as part of your routine practice, that's probably not realistic. You kind of have to declare a major. Yeah. <laughs> you're either a heart surgeon, you know, you're doing straight cardiac or you're doing straight thoracic, you know, lung or esophageal work mm-hmm. or your vascular, which you're not even going to CT surgery for that. So, um, so that's where the, the track you know, concept comes in for the fellowship. Yeah. So that's a traditional way. Then there's the other extreme, which is I-6, integrated six-year, where straight out of medical school, you match into an I-6 program, where you do a little bit of general surgery, a little bit of vascular, cardiac, thoracic, and it's all within six years. Granted, the, the difference there is you can't sit for your general surgery boards. Mm. Not that you would need to or want to, per se, be, you know, uh, like I said before, you know, no need to do 100 colon resections. And <laughs> Just itching to do a gallbladder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So uh, unless you're really, you know, so that's where you, you kind of take yourself out of contention for that. Yeah. And then there's some programs that do like a hybrid where, you know, uh, maybe not I-6, but you do maybe four years of general surgery and you go into two. of. Uh, so, yeah. but I think increasingly the I-6 and they become pretty competitive. Yeah. Uh, well, let so, me ask you a, a lot of those a lot of the surgical subspecialties when I have these conversations a lot of times that general training comes in handy because as you graduate your residency slash fellowship training coming out and practicing you have to build up your specialty patient load and so having that general training is what keeps you busy until you start building up that is, is that not a problem for for cardiac surgery you know, I would say that um, there's two things I would say. One, it's not everybody that knows out of the gates that they want to be a heart surgeon. And so having the general surgery backbone, it's such great training and it really covers the spectrum. It really does also put you, uh, exposes you to different, all kinds of, you know, subspecialty areas. I mean, colorectal, plastics, abdominal transplant, CT surgery, and the whole nine, right? So, it, it, for someone who's, you know, not 100% sure they want to do cardiac surgery, uh, I think it makes sense to do general surgery because you may change your mind and you have, you are now, you have, you're a full-fledged general surgeon and that can, you know, you can do all sorts of things with that. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing is the paradigm shift. So I think, not that the jury is still out, but you have to be sure if you're doing an I6 program that you're going to a place that's going to have the patients to teach you these things. Because back to our original discussion about the the ogre, you know, heart surgeon, before they were used to having a full, you know, fully trained general surgeon, you know, to yell at, right, to, you know, teach them heart surgery. But now if you're coming in, you don't even know how to suture, you don't even know how to tie, you're like learning that you imagine like yeah. I just it's just like that's, that's gonna be a tough one too uh so you got to make sure obviously that these programs have a good track record um for their i6 uh, uh trainees yeah i'll, I'll never yeah. forget when i was doing my my internship there was a, a tufts medical student where i was at and like 
I, I told her, I'm like, you need to go start an IV on this patient. She goes, no, I don't want to. I'm like, what, what do you mean you don't want to? Don't you want to learn? Yeah, yeah, no, just, no, I don't want to learn. That's what the nurses are for. I'm like, oh, come on. Unbelievable. Yeah, I, a, I jump yeah. at those chances. <laughs> oh, well. Different world, different world. Yeah, but yeah. we work with it. So for the student who is is interested in one of those I6 programs, they're dead set on being a, a cardiac surgeon. What do they need to do to make themselves competitive to match into one of those programs? So I would say two things uh, are critical. One, obviously, to get a lot of exposure, uh, you know, deep exposure in in those areas. So do a sub-I, sub-internships in cardiac surgery, electives in in cardiac surgery. You obviously want to have cardiac surgeons that you worked with that can sort of speak on your behalf and get you a good letter of recommendation, endorsement letter. Um, that's key. And if possible, getting involved in some research early on in med school. You know, year one, maybe identifying a cardiac surgery mentor, uh, help with some, you know, chart-based, you know, clinical outcomes projects, things to sort of wet the whistle, get involved, start to learn the lingo a little bit, the field kind of. And who knows, get, get some uh, abstracts uh, out there to, to, to present at national meetings or have their name on one of those or research that. Because, you know, I-6 programs are competitive, uh, I would say. So uh, anything that you could do to set yourself apart and to sort of reinforce that that's really what you want to go into, I think is key. For the osteopathic medical student listening to this, what do, what do they need to do to to overcome any sort of negative bias that may be out there at some programs? Sure. I, I think those those two things still apply. I mean, I think you still need to be um, really, uh, pr- you know, proactive about getting, getting your feet wet and exposure in, experience in that environment with in cardiac surgery, getting to work with cardiac surgeons so that they uh, can see your work ethic, see your clinical sort of performance and all that and speak to it. And then the research, um, you know, I, I think unfortunately we, we hate to say this, but you know, um, they probably need to do pretty well, right? Uh, grade wise, uh, and you know, on their step one, step two, all those things. Um, maybe even, um, you know, I did a whole year of research during my medical school, uh, education granted it was built into the curriculum, but not, but that's actually few and far between many yeah. places, many medical schools, you have to take another year. So even considering doing that, a year of research uh, during medical school in, in, in cardiac surgery related area. So uh, that, that's, that's probably where I would start. Yeah. For the future primary care doc listening to this, is there anything that they need to know about heart failure patients, future cardiac transplant patients that, that will help you do your job better? I think the biggest thing is that um, heart failure, we know, is more deadly than most cancers, mm-hmm. yet it doesn't ha- garner the same street cred that cancer does. So uh, if a primary care doctor is seeing a patient and feels a breast lump or an x-ray with a shadow worried about a lung you know, tumor, it's like automatic knee-jerk reflex. They're going to see an oncologist, right? I mean, there's yeah. no questions asked. That's it. Heart failure, though, is kind of like, well, you know, <laughs> here's some Lasix. <laughs> vitals are, yeah, here's some Lasix, you know, some ACE inhibitors, you know, let's see what's going on. You know, you seem okay. Let's see how this goes for a while, right? <laughs> um, and then, you know, then we get the patients too late. Yeah. Uh, or they get to us in the 11th hour and the wheels have fallen off 
and uh, they're like, transplant? What are you talking? You know, we have to do this whole crazy long evaluation. And we're like, well, wait a minute. You've never had a screening colonoscopy. You've never seen a dentist. Now we're trying to do all this stuff. Yeah. Like at the 11th hour. And it just, you know, I think if these patients were sent to us earlier, you know, before the wheels fall off so that they know, hey, this is an eventuality, possibly, you know, let me get all my ducks in a row, things like that. Um, and having, uh, from a primary care perspective, a very, very low threshold for referring them to a heart failure specialist, just to be sure that it's not too early or, you know, yeah. to educate the patient, you know, who knows, it may encourage more compliance with yeah. medications. Like, oh boy, I better, you know, I better get with the program because I don't want to end up having to get a transplant or something like that. So that's where I, I'm a huge tech fan and, and technology, I think can fix a ton of things. And when, when you said that, I'm like, well, if we had a centralized EMR, right? Yeah. We, we can yeah. build in those sort of algorithms. As soon as that heart failure diagnosis code comes across, here are the, the 10 next steps that need to happen. And, and yep. we're not dependent on the, the primary care doc relying on his or her own knowledge to, to do those yeah. things. So, And that's going to be a huge problem going forward because it's getting yeah. more and more patients with, with that uh, unfortunate disease. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and even post COVID, right? What's what's COVID doing to hearts? We we know it's causing issues. What are we going to have a, a huge um, kind of onslaught of heart failure patients um, in the future? We may very COVID. well. I mean, the yeah. jury's still out, but we're we're seeing some you know funny stuff, right? Yeah. With the heart, these delayed manifestations, <clears throat> these lingering heart issues, hypercoagulable states, all these things. So, yeah. you know. We, uh, we really need to get on the ball there and be sure we're not, uh, you know, missing something. Yeah. You uh, talked about kind of picking out your niche with uh, heart failure. What other sort of subspecialties within cardiac surgery are there for, for people who may be interested in it? So there's the um, minimally invasive valve space, structural heart space, where you can not only... Um, work with cardiologists on catheter-based valve replacement therapies, but also if you ha if it if it calls for an open surgical intervention that you can do it in a minimally invasive way, small incisions, robotic, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So that's one. Another kind of uh, niche area is aortic stuff, where you're well-versed in open approaches to fixing or replacing any segment of the thoracic aorta from the root all the way down to the descending. And also with catheter-based, stent-based ways of doing those things, um, those two. Um, and then, you know, regular heart failure, we talked about LVAD transplant. That, that's, that space is still going to grow exp exponentially. But I would say those are the three, I would say, phenotypes um, in, in cardiac surgery. There's still going to always be a need for coronary surgeons as part of, of, of that practice. There's always a need, you know, for open surgery for endocarditis. But if you were to say, what are the three big niches? I would say those were the three. If you could go back and tell your early self something that you know now, kind of warn yourself or, or motivate yourself, what, what do you think it would be? It would be to learn more about business stuff, meaning how a hospital functions, how, you know, all this stuff, RVUs and, and, and capital investments and how just the flow of hospital, you know, the business of hospital administration, all, all those things. I don't, I didn't know any of it at yeah. all. Zero. 
uh, I just had this assumption that you walk into your first job <laughs> and all right, you know, kinda, where are my patients? You know, let's, yeah. how, let's get, let's get cracking, you know, none of that. How do you, you know, how do you work on referrals? How do you interface with people in the community to, you know, all those things to, it's a business really. How do you, you're a new, you know, commodity on the market. How do you build your brand and get people to refer patients to you? Yeah. It's not autopilot. It's, it's, it's not a, we thought. it's not a field of <laughs> dreams. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I would have definitely boned up a little bit more on that stuff, yeah. uh, during, during med school and beyond. What do you like the so, most about being a cardiac surgeon? I love it. I, I lose track of time. I mean, uh, it, it never gets old when I'm in, you know, in the zone doing a surgery it could be seven hours. It doesn't, I don't even feel it. It's just when you love what you do and you're passionate about it, it's just, and, and it's so, I mean, the impact is just yeah. massive on these folks. You know, they're one you know minute, they're, they're, they're totally incapacitated by their heart disease completely. And all of a sudden they have a new heart and they can breathe. You can just tell them and they just feel such a, yeah. a, a an immense relief. Uh, that's so rewarding. It really is. Have you had any of those moments we see on on social media nowadays of family members going to a, a patient who has their loved one's heart now inside of them and listening to their loved one's heart? I, I, I've never cried at any of those, I, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've had patients who... Um who finally, um, cause we sort of obviously with, it's like HIPAA, right. HIPAA, but yeah. eventually we do allow for those types of exchanges to occur. And I've had, it, it's, it's such a surreal, amazing, you know, moment for these people and to see that. And it's the emotion you can't even you yeah. know describe those emotions. It's intense. That's awesome. Yeah. What, do you, what do you like the yeah. least? Um, well, I think that it's um, the unpredictable nature of it and the fact that because of what my niche is, I often see people that get to us too late and where it's like you have therapies, you have things that you could offer, but sometimes people are, you know, these, the, time, the window of opportunity sometimes can close on you before you want it to. And no matter what you do, it's sort of the, the die have been cast, so to speak. So that's really disheartening because, you know, you know, if you had seen somebody sooner, I think for me, it speaks to the, the flaws in our, in the paradigm of how we, you know, of healthcare, of how we, you know, manage patients uh, to your point, you know, the central, you know, EHR, just not having things protocolized and such a wide, you know, spread and how patients are managed and when they're referred for heart failure. To me, it's really frustrating. I think there should be, uh, it should, you know, I write about this and other, you know, we should treat it more like cancer, protocolized, automatic, tumor board. This is what happened. You have this, okay, this is the, this is what you get. This is the chemo, you know, it's just all out there. Yeah. So that's to me the most disappointing part. We need a, a stronger lobbying body for you guys, like uh, the, the oncology world has. You're right. You're absolutely right. What major changes do you see coming that may shift the future of cardiac surgery? I know I've seen some some videos on social media of like turning leaves into these cardiac cells and, and other things. Are we sure. are we close to growing organs to getting rid of whether that's stem cell treatments, getting rid of needing heart transplants? What's the future look like? Do you think? 
I think there's three competing sort of, it's like the Manhattan Project, uh, <laughs> three competing sort of modalities that are going to potentially do away with the need for transplant. One is creating the perfect mechanical substitute. Yep. So the holy grail right now is a totally implantable wireless pump because all the pumps that we have, as great as they are, they're still battery. You still need batteries, still a cord coming out that you're tethered somewhat to. So that is going to be a huge boom for the field because when you eliminate that cord, yeah. all of a sudden it becomes just synonymous, you know, same thing as a transplant. We just need wireless charging That's, like our phones. You lay down in bed and you're right. charging. <laughs> 100%. Or yeah. like, you know, nuclear, nuclear based power. Yeah. Who knows? Iron Man. Type yeah. Thing. Who knows? <laughs> So that's that's one. Yep. Number two is xenotransplant, figuring out how to crack the immunology code of yep. getting other species organs to take in humans. Uh, that's still a lot of active work going on, and actually some pretty good success uh, occurring there. And then third is the stem cell, like you know, you the ghost heart, right? You have a a heart, you digest away all the tissue on a scaffold, mm -hmm. and then you repopulate the scaffold with autologous stem cells. That I think. Um, is in development and there's been some areas some, some progress i think that's a little further off you know the heart is a pump so i think the, the one that's probably going to win the race if i had to bet is the mechanical substitute yeah. um just because of the e is just figuring out that engineering battery issue and yeah. once that's done have they, the have they solved I, I know one of the one of the early issues was that most of those pumps were just continuous pumps and the the body doesn't like that have they solved that issue where it's it's uh, similar to the heartbeat? Yeah, so the newest pump, the HeartMate 3, has um, which has had the, the best sort of um, blood compatibility profile of any of the, you know, its predecessor pumps, lowest stroke risk, lowest thr pump thrombosis rates. Um, it's a continuous flow pump. However, they've embedded a, a pulse feature where the pump will ramp up and ramp down as mm -hmm. far as speeds. Every every half uh, a second, so try to it's like an artificial pulse, so to speak. Yeah. Um, that I think, uh, but more so, I think the design of the pump, you know, spaces, less moving parts, the blood's just not beat up as much as it passes through, has really uh, made a tremendous difference. Um, so, you know, I think more of that. I think really the key now is just the battery thing, is the power. That's the key. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Elon is uh, looking into that with all <laughs> this battery must. tech. Got the answers. That's it. <laughs> Just walk around with a solar array on your head. Um, That's it. it. It sounds like if you had to do it all over again, you would you would still be a cardiac surgeon. Hundred percent, no regrets. Yeah. Uh, and what I tell students all the time is, if I have to talk you into doing heart surgery, if you have to talk yourself into it, you it's shouldn't do you. it. Yeah, it's it's got to be like all in. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Any last words of wisdom besides, unless you're all in, be all out uh, for, for the student potentially looking into cardiac surgery? I think uh, before, you know, I think the, the key, I would have never known I wanted to be a surgeon had I not actually put myself in this situation where I can get exposed to surgery and realize, wow, I really love it. Yeah. I, I had nothing would have led me to believe that I would have, right, and, until I actually put myself in that situation. So I would say before making any, you know, judgment about it put yourself in the situation and see put your, and if if you feel like wow I, this is amazing um then who knows maybe it's it's something for you to think about too uh so I, I would say i would encourage people to actually get exposure to before they really make their decisions about what they want to do with their careers in medicine and the second thing i would say is you know 
it could seem daunting. It, it is daunting in many respects, but anybody could do it if you are willing to put in the time and the effort. It's just one step after another leads to the next, leads to the next. So don't get discouraged. There will be dark days, but uh, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Just kind of power through. All right, there you have it. A great story from Dr. Brian Lima, again, a cardiac surgeon, and his thoughts about cardiac surgery and why he loves it, what potentially he would change about it, and much more. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have more great guests coming at you, including next week's. So don't forget to subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And don't forget about our e-shadowing program that is coming out every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Again, eshadowing.com. You can find out more about that. Uh, Right now we have 16 plus 18, something like that, guests lined up to, to do every Monday. The goal is to be able to record them, track your attendance, do a little quiz so that we can give you some credit, some certificate, something to show medical schools what you are doing in these COVID times. So hope you have a great week. Go to eshadowing.com and sign up for our eshadowing programs again Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern is when those are going to be live. But again, the goal is to have them available either potentially here on Specialty Stories as a supplemental episode that goes out every week or as their own uh, potential episode as well. That is yet to be determined. So with that said, have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.